Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. My name is Matt Carter, the pastor of preaching here at the Austin Stone. And I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. If you brought a Bible, if you didn't, um, that's okay. And um, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 is where we're going to be here in just a second. We began our series last week that we're calling it Sexual Sin. And the reason that we're doing that is because Paul addresses in Ephesians chapter 5 um, two subjects. He addresses uh, the subject of marriage later on in the chapter. And he's also addressing at the beginning of the chapter, not necessarily sex, but the issue of sexual sin. And so that's kind of what we're going to do. I want to jump in, just give you a quick reminder of what we talked about last week. Um, let's read this together. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Do a real fast recap, and we'll jump into the text we're looking at today. In Ephesians 5, 1, he says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Before he begins to talk about sex or sexual sin in any shape, form, or fashion, he reminds us that we are children of God, those of us who are in Christ. And he says, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then he says this, he gives us the first example of what it looks like that uh, for a person who is walking, giving himself up or herself up as a, uh, a fragrant offering to the Lord in verse 3, he says, but sexual immorality. It's a Greek word, porneia. It's a word that encompasses all forms of sexual morality. He says, but porneia and all impurity, that's a word that means to be mixed it's a word that means to have one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the world. Uh, to have a part of your heart that loves Jesus, but then a part of your heart that has been given away to something completely different. He says, but sexual morality, all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And the word saints there means those of us who have been set apart for the Lord. And so we are a people that have been set apart for the kingdom of God. Of God. He goes on in verse 4, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking, which is out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. We didn't spend a lot of time last week talking about that. We talked about that the act of sexual morality, Paul is saying, is not to be named among us, but we're not even supposed to joke about it. And then we looked at verse 5 where the, uh, Paul talks about how big of a deal sexual sin is to the Lord in verse 5, a sobering verse in 5 and 6. He says, for you may be sure of this. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. In verse 6, he says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, sexual morality, impurity, covetousness, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now look at verse 7. All right, we're going to pick up in verse 7. He's, he's going to say some things in verse 7 and verse 8 that are crucial for us as believers to understand when we fight against any form of sin, sexual or otherwise. Let's read verse 7. He says, therefore, just in light of everything I just said about sexual morality and God's response to it, he says, therefore, do not be partakers with them. Do not be partakers with them. The word partaker means co-participant. And so Paul is very simply saying that sexual morality, in light of the fact that those who are sexually immoral have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. That in light of the fact that God is going to pour out his wrath on the sons of disobedience, 
Paul is exhorting us. He's saying, do not be a co-participant with them. Okay, now, Paul's going to do now is he's going to tell us why. He's going to tell us why. He's going to kind of show us, and hear this. He's going to show us the foundational reason why you as a believer, as a person who is in Christ, is called to turn away from sin and to fight sin and to repent of sin in your life. One of the foundational reasons, sexual or otherwise, that you're called to turn away from sin. Now, when I, was, I think I shared this last week, but when I was growing up, and whenever my parents or whether my my pastor would talk about sexual sin. They would tell me that it's something that was wrong and that I need to avoid it. And then they were really good at talking about the consequences of sexual sin. But as I look back on it, one of the things that I realized is very rarely did people tell me why sexual sin is wrong for the believer. Why is it that we're called as the people set apart for the Lord? Why is it not proper in our lives? And that's what Paul is doing here. As he's about to tell us, as Christ followers, why you and I should fight against, have a problem with, turn from, and run from sexual sin. So let's read this again, verse 5. He says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral and impure, who is covetous, that's an adulterer, has no adherence to the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the son of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Now look at verse 8. It's a powerful verse. Here's why. He says, For at one time... You were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. That is the foundational reason why we turn from sin in our lives. Paul says, here's why you, believer, are not to partake of sexual immorality or impurity. And the answer is because at one time you were darkness, but now you are Light. Now here's the thing. Look at what Paul says there at the beginning, at the first phrase. He says, for at one time, in the past, at one time, you were darkness. Now the most important thing, church, about that statement is that the scripture does not say that before your conversion, you were in darkness. It says something much more profound than that. The scripture says that before your conversion, you were were darkness. It was your identity. Okay, the Bible is saying here that darkness was not just something that you did, but darkness is something that you were. And Paul is saying to us who are believers, you turn from sexual immorality because there has been a change in your identity. And church, that is key. You run from sin in your life because something has changed in you. There has been a radical shift, not just in your behavior, but there's been a radical shift in who you are. In verse 8, I'll say it again. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Now again, look at the second phrase there. You are light in the Lord. The most important thing about that phrase is that the scripture does not say that after your conversion, you are in the light, which is true, you are in the light, but the scripture says that after your conversion to Christ, you are the light. Jesus says this, he tells us this. That, that's why he said, you are the light of the world. When he said that to us, he's talking 
not simply just about the actions that we're supposed to go out there and do, but he's talking about a brand new identity we have in Jesus. Jesus is saying that light is not only the actions you're going to take, but it is now who you are. That's profound to us. Paul's saying, look, don't participate in the deeds of darkness because that is not who you are any longer. And by the way, if somebody were to ask you a question about why you walk in holiness, if they were to ask you, you know, why aren't you having sex before marriage? I've noticed that about you. You've talked about that. You and your girlfriend are not having sex before marriage. Why? You're a single. Why are you not sleeping around? Um, you're, you're a man, I've noticed. Why, are you, why do you abstain from pornography? If people ask you as a man, why do you guard your eyes? I've noticed that you don't gawk at women. Why do you do that? If, if you're a woman in the workplace and, and somebody says, look, I've noticed that you don't flirt with other men that aren't your husband. Why is it that you live that way? Why do you walk differently? One of the most biblical answers that the most biblical answer that you could ever give them is the reason that I not do those things is because it is no longer who I am. That you choose to turn from certain things, not because an action necessarily is wrong. Primarily, you do it because of your identity in Jesus. And by the way, did you know that this new identity you have as the light is why sin feels so wrong to you now? Did you know that? Have you ever wondered why as a believer, after you trusted in Jesus, were filled with the Holy Spirit? Have you ever wondered why now sin bothers you so much? Is it because um, the reason that sin feels so foreign to you now is because as the scientists say that you're having a chemical reaction in your brain that's a product of evolution or is it something deeper than that? Is it possible that sin now feels so wrong to you because you're doing something that is absolutely foreign and contrary to your very nature and identity as a believer? Sin will always feel wrong to a person who is light. And I want to give you an example of that, of, of how it feels wrong when you're walking in, in, in a way that is contrary to your nature. And I'm going to give you an illustration here. Um, and Longhorns, I need you to give me some grace with this illustration I'm about to give you. All right? Give me some grace. I don't talk much about what I'm about to talk about, but I'm about to talk about it. Now, here's the thing. I want to preface this illustration with this statement. I love Longhorns. I just want you to know that. I love the Texas Longhorns. I love you guys that are long. How many longhorns we got? Will you raise your hand? I love you guys. Y'all are amazing. Thank you for coming to the church. I also love Austin. I want you to know that about me. I love Austin. I think Austin is the greatest city in the world. And I'm actually going to prove to you a real quick little side note. I'm going to prove to you that Austin is the greatest city in the world. Y'all ready for this? What's the greatest country in the whole world? No, Texas is not the greatest country in the world. Actually, yes, Texas is the greatest country in the world. Yes, for all those on the podcast, Texas is the greatest country in the world. The USA is the greatest country in the world. I know that's an arrogant American thing to say, but it's a fact. I've traveled all over the world. You cannot beat the United States of America. We got Chick-fil-A, amen? (laughs) USA, greatest country in the world. What is the greatest state in the greatest country in the world? Texas, it's just a fact. 
North Carolina's cool, California's all right, Hawaii's all right, but just hands down, Texas is the greatest state in the United States of America. And church, what is the greatest city in the greatest state in the greatest country in the whole world? It's Austin, Texas. It ain't Waco, for crying out loud. You live in the greatest country on planet Earth. I just want you to know that I know that. I love the Longhorns. The greatest quarterbacks in the history of football, Colt McCoy. I, I, he and I are buds. We hunt together. We hang out. We wrote a book together. I love the Longhorns. And here's the thing. Even though I live in Austin, even though I love the Longhorns, even though I live in an environment that is absolutely saturated with Longhorns, I am not a Longhorn. I am a fighting Texas Aggie. A lot of Aggies here too. I'm an Aggie. Even though, I, even though like, I'm, I'm saturated in a, in a place full of burnt horns and longhorns, I am a Texas Aggie. That is my identity. And I became aware of just how um, at odds my identity is in the culture that I live in one time when Coach Barnes invited me to go on um, one of their team games to Michigan State. And uh, Coach Barnes invited me to go. It was really cool. He let me go on the airplane. We flew to Michigan State. It was homecoming from Michigan State. It was a couple of years ago. And when we got there, before we got to the stadium, he said, Matt, you can't go in this arena without wearing burnt orange. And I was like, okay, Coach. And so I put on burnt orange for the first time in my life. And it felt really weird to me. But I'm like, okay, I can do this. I love Coach Barnes. He's the man. So we're, we're cruising around, going to the locker room. It was awesome. And then what they sent me out of the locker room because they were doing like their final thing. And I had to go get in the, in, in my, in the seat. And we were sitting right behind the team. And when I walked out, and the way that we had to get to our seats because we were with the team is we actually had to walk onto the floor and then kind of go up through this thing right by where the team sits. And so I didn't get to kind of come in from the back way. And so I was the very first person wearing burnt orange to walk in this arena. And it's on homecoming, right? And so in Michigan State, I don't know if you ever think about Michigan State, they're basketball school, and they love their basketball. I think they've won some national championships maybe. And so this place was hopping. I mean, this place was full, and it was green. And they were just all kind of jumping around, getting ready for this UT basketball team to walk in the door. But the UT basketball team doesn't walk on the floor first. I walk in the floor first. And so I walk onto the floor wearing burnt orange, and that place just went crazy. They went nuts. All 50,000 of those green people were staring at me, and they started booing and screaming, and I heard cuss words and true story before Jesus. They started throwing stuff at me. I got hit in the head. Somebody had wadded up a piece of newspaper. I don't know where they got a newspaper inside the stadium, but they wadded up this big piece of newspaper, and I'm kind of jogging to my seat by this time. Bam! I get hit in the head with this piece of newspaper, and I'm sitting there. People are behind me screaming at me. The team hadn't come out yet. Refs aren't out yet. I'm going to die at this point. And it hits me. A true story. I'm sitting there, and it hits me. I am being persecuted for being a longhorn. And I am an Aggie. And I love Coach Barnes, and I love the UT basketball team, but the whole time I sat there, it just felt wrong to me. It's because it's not who I am, even though I'm in that environment. Here's what you need to understand, believer. The day that you got saved, the day, the moment 
of your conversion to Christ, you became the light, the scripture says. You became the light. That's who you are. And sin, the darkness, will never, ever, ever again sit well and be at home in in your heart. Why? Because it's just not who you are anymore. It's literally impossible for you to be okay with sin, with darkness, because you are the light. And as a matter of fact, it's been my experience that a, that a true child of God, that a true believer, that a person that's really indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God, a person that's truly a believer that is walking actively in sin is probably the most miserable person on planet Earth. They're probably the single most miserable person on the planet Earth. A true believer walking in sin. Here's why. Because you're a Christian. If you're really a Christian, you can't enjoy sin anymore. And because you're walking in sin, you can't really enjoy God. And you're kind of stuck in this place and it's miserable. Um, You can never, as a believer, as the light, you can never really enjoy long-term darkness anymore because you're the light and you can't really enjoy being the light because you're walking in darkness. for For the true believer, sin is literally a monumental waste of time. It's a monumental waste of time. It's the dumbest thing we could ever do because it is not who we are anymore. Ephesians 5, 8, Paul says, for at one time you were darkness, but now, it's good two words there. But now you are light. So walk as children of the light. It's our identity. That's why we turn from sin. It's not who we are anymore. And I want to give you two quick applications for this. Just kind of real life applications of how our new identity affects how we behave. Not the other way around. Here's the first one. And this is not going to necessarily apply to everybody in the room. But it's going to apply to a lot of you. And for those of you... They may be out of the teenage, college, single years, but you have um, children that are growing up. Here's the answer to this question. The fact that we turn from sin in our lives because we were darkness, but we, we are now light. We've had an identity change completely to me. Answers one of the most asked questions I've had over the years as a pastor and as a youth pastor back in the day. Um, in regards to sexual sin. And here's probably the number one question whenever I talk about this stuff that I get. I've, I've already gotten a couple emails this week for people asking this question. And the question is, how far is too far? How far is too far? You know, I'm in a relationship with a boy. I'm in a relationship with a girl. I'm in a relationship with a married woman. I'm dating, engaged, whatever. How far is too far uh, physically? I get that question in marriage. You know, and, and inside the, the sexual expression, the marriage bed, like how far is too far? And we're going to probably talk more specifically about that when we hit marriage in a few weeks. Um, but here's, here's the thing. When I get that question, it's always bothered me a little bit. And here's why. Because what people are really asking when they ask that question, how far is too far? Is what they're asking is, is where, where can I draw a line, okay, where sin is, is right on the other side of it? Where, where can I draw a line somewhere where darkness is right on the other side of that? And they ask that question because what they're doing is they want to see how close they can get to the line without actually crossing the line. And so if you're, you're in a relationship and you're asking that question, 
how far is too far? I'd like to ask you a question. And here's the question I'd like to ask you. If you are the light, if you are light, as the, as the Bible says you are in Christ, do you really think that the fullness of joy, that the fullness of satisfaction, that the fullness of happiness, that the fullness of peace is found by inching and walking towards the darkness? Do you really think that as a child of the light, the fullness of your joy is going to be found when you are leaning up against the darkness? The answer is is no. And believe it or not, the Bible actually gives a very, very clear answer to us as to how far is too far in 1 Corinthians 6.18. Don't turn there. I just want you to listen to it. It's a very, very simple verse. Let's bring it up. 1 Corinthians 6.18. Paul answers the question, How far is too far? Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Run from sexual immorality. The Bible is saying to us, don't find the line and see how close you can get to the line. The Bible is saying to us, find the line and then turn around and run from the line. That's what the scripture is saying. Flee sexual immorality. By the way, that is his response to what I talked about last week on why God has such a problem with sexual sin is because you as a believer are the body of Christ. When you take yourself into a sexually immoral position, you are taking the body of Jesus with you. And therefore, Paul says, here's the response. Here's what you do. Here's the action step. You run from that line. Okay? And so when you're making decisions... In your life as a believer, such as, um, you know, how far is too far? What is this physical relationship in my dating life going to look like? When you're making decisions like, what kind of movie am I going to watch on Valentine's Day weekend or any weekend? When you're, when you're making decisions such as, is this, is this website okay for me to look at? Is it not okay for me to look at? When you're making decisions such as, is this friendship that I've got with this man or this woman that's not my husband, that's not my wife... Is it okay? Do not, do not let your decisions be made based on some line that's hugged up next to the darkness. Okay, find out where that line is and run towards the light. Okay, that's first application. Here's a second one, and this is a little bit harder one. In light of what we learned so far, that the scripture promises us that in Christ you were darkness but you've had an identity change, and now you are light. Okay, you are light. If you're here today, and you are in sexual sin, or you're in any kind of sin for that matter, and you're okay with it, if, if you're involved in sin in your life, and it does not feel contrary to your nature, if you're engaged in sexual sin and you do not feel an incredible desire to fight against it and to turn from it and run from the darkness, it might be because you are not, it probably is because you are not the light, as the scripture says. You're like, Matt, I'm sleeping with my girlfriend. And I'd ask you, are you a Christian? And you answer yes. I would ask you, are you going to stop? If your answer is no, it's probably because you're not the light. 
you say, Matt, um, I'm having an emotional affair with a man that's not my husband at work. I would ask you, are you a Christian? You'd say yes. Then I'd say, okay, are you going to stop? If your answer is no, it's probably because you're not the light. If you're saying, man, I've fallen in love with some other woman and I'm, and I'm thinking about leaving my wife, I'm thinking about leaving my children, I would ask you, are you a child of God? Are you a believer? Are you a Christian? You'd say, yes, and, and I would ask you, are you going to stop? Are you going to repent? If you say no, it's probably because you are not the light. And why do I say that? Because that's what the Bible says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. Scripture says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. No one born of God, no one, no one, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Why? For God's seed abides in him. God's seed is inside of you. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. Watch this. And he cannot keep on sinning. Does the Christian never sin? No, that's not what it says. It says the Christian cannot keep on sinning. Why? Because he has been born of the living God. He has been changed from darkness into light. He cannot keep sinning. Folks, I struggle with sin as much as anybody in this room. I promise you that. I guarantee you that. I fight against sin as much as anybody in this room. I promise you that. But here's the thing. One of the reasons that I know I'm saved, that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I am the light, because what has been true in my life is that I cannot keep sinning. I've tried. I can't do it. When I fall into sin, one of two things happens, and it's happened since I've trusted in Jesus every single time. One of two things happen. When I sin, the Holy Spirit starts screaming at me real loudly. That is not who you are anymore. It's not who you are. And I turn, and I run from it. And the times in my life, the handful of times in my life where the Holy Spirit has said, that's not who you are anymore, and I just keep on sinning, and I've done that a few times, then the discipline of the Lord comes into my life. And he forces me to stop. And that's happened a few times. The Bible says he does that because I am his son. Here's the thing. If you can keep on sinning and there's no conviction of the Holy Spirit and there's no discipline and there's no repentance, it's probably because you are not the light. The mark of a true believer, church, is not sinlessness. The mark of a true believer is that you fight against sin and you turn from sin. If there is no fight, then there is no light. All right? Now, I want to end the message today. And I want to remind us, regardless of where you are in the spectrum, I want to end, the, end this message today. And I just want to remind us of God's response to sexual sinners. God's response to sexual sinners. Because there are two very, very different responses that God has for sexual sinners. Sinners. The first one we've talked about at length so far, and that is God's response to unrepentant sexual sinners. Those who walk continually in disobedience 
In Ephesians 5, Paul says, for you can be sure of this, that everyone who is, that key, the key word there is is. It's your identity. For you may be sure of this, that everyone whose identity is sexual, moral, or impure, who is covetous, that's an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God, of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. You say, I don't care what the culture says. But because of these things, the wrath of God is going to come upon the sons of disobedience. In Revelation 21, he gets really graphic, actually, what the wrath of God looks like for the sons of disobedience, if you want to go look it up. But that is the response of the Lord to unrepentant sexual sin. If that's where you are and, and, and you're not fighting it and you're not turning from it and you're not running from it and you're hanging out and you're okay with it, you need to repent today. Today, before you leave this room. But there's another group of people in this room that, and I, I've been doing this long enough to know that it's actually probably a lot of us. That you're experiencing this kind of sin in your life and you are fighting against it. You are battling it. You are repenting of it, but sometimes, man, it's there. And I just want to tell you of one other response there is in the scripture to sexual sinners who turn, to sexual sinners who repent. And it's a beautiful story. It's a story that Jesus tells of one of the greatest sexual sinners in all the Bible. His name's the prodigal son, who took his father's inheritance and went to a foreign land and spent all of his father's inheritance, the scripture says, literally in the Greek, on prostitutes. That's sexual sin, folks. Hey, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me the money. Give me the cash. I'm gone. Spend it all on prostitutes. But the scripture says he came to his senses. He came to his senses when he woke up in the pig pen one day. And he got up. And he says, I'm filthy. I'm nasty. I've screwed up worse than anybody I've ever met in my whole life. But you know what? I don't like the pig pen. And so I'm coming home. I'm coming home. This is not who I am. And he started walking down the road with his head hanging low. But Jesus said that when he was still a long way off, the father saw him. And the scripture said that the father had compassion on him and took off running. And when he got to his son, the sexual sinner who had gotten out of the pig pen, the father threw his arms around him and took off, father took off his ring and put it on the son's hand because he, so the son had already taken off his ring and cashed it in on sexual sin. And the father said, here's my ring. And he put it on his finger. And then he took his robe and he wrapped it around his son's injured flesh and said, here's my robe. You can have it. And he wrapped his arms around him and said, my son was dead, but now he is alive. And he threw a party. You see, when you turn from sexual sin and you come home, What's waiting for you is not condemnation. What's waiting for you is not a lecture. What's waiting for you is not shame. What's waiting for you is forgiveness. You turn from sexual sin, you go to the Father. What's waiting for you is love. What's waiting for you is acceptance. What's waiting for you is family and peace and joy and love. And so I don't care where you are today. I don't care what you're in the middle of. If that's where you're at, stand up. And come home. The Father is waiting for you. All right? Let's pray together.
with our heads bowed and our eyes closed today. Just do business with the Lord. There is no sin in your life that's greater than the cross of Jesus Christ. And if, if you are the light today, then this is God's grace in your life calling you back to himself. It's, it's not too late. It's not over. Um, you hadn't gone too far. This is, this is God saying, you're the light. Come back home. He's waiting on you. There's no speech. There's just forgiveness. And so come home to him. Ask him to forgive you. Thank him for the grace in your life to fight. Jesus, the gospel is the greatest story that's ever been told. It's where you paid the penalty of our sin for us. And I pray you would remind us today of the gospel that that we don't have to go out there and be perfect, but Lord, you were perfect for us. And that when you died on the cross, Jesus, you paid for all sexual sin. That The battle against sexual sin has been won through the the blood of Jesus. So Lord, our response today is to trust in your work on the cross. And let us remember that we are cleaned and we are forgiven and we are sons and daughters of the King because of it. Jesus, we love you, praise you. I pray we'd be a people set apart for you. You do a great work in our church today. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, church. Let's stand together. Let's worship this God who waits for us.